All right, so we are starting a new teaching series for the month of March called DNA. Uh, DNA stands for Discipleship, Nurture, and Accountability. Uh, this is a three-week series, um, and really the sermon se- series is to kind of answer the question, how do we become more like Jesus? How do we become more like Jesus in community? And really, what kind of spaces and rhythms do we need in our life for this to flourish and to thrive? Um, so we're going to talk about for the next three weeks. Uh, a few weeks ago, our Oikos group was meeting, and we were kind of debriefing on you know, the season of fasting, how we want to fast, all of that. And Grace Shapley said this really funny thing. She was like, something I appreciate about Oikos is that we talk a lot about something and then we do the thing. Um, And that's what we're going to do this month. Uh, We're going to be talking about discipleship, nurture, and accountability to hopefully in April launch what we're calling DNA groups, which are really just uh, small groups of three to five people within your Oikos group who meet together uh, once a month for spiritual friendship, spiritual companionship. And so the, past, the next three weeks are going to be just trying to cast a vision of what that can look like, what that can do. And this is something that I have been uh, really passionate about um, and really looking forward to. So as we move along in the sermon today, just keep DNA groups in the back of your mind. Uh, what would it look like to meet regularly with people for spiritual friendship? Uh, so here at Oikos, I serve as the discipleship minister. Um, uh, I came on staff part-time when we launched last January, um, and after uh, lots of conversations with Smith about, you know, what does it mean to be in a church that helps people grow? What, what does it mean to live in community with one another? Um, saying yes to that invitation was really easy, but very quickly I began to take on kind of imposter syndrome because it's like, what? what is discipleship? Like, what does that mean? How, what do we do with that? Um, and I really began to wonder You know, I think generally I could have told you what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, but I wanted to know, like firmly be able to grasp what it means to walk in discipleship to Jesus. So through that, this began a journey of of reading and listening to anything I could get my hands on that talked about discipleship. Uh, This looked like conversations and discussions with lots of people who have been doing this for years and years and years. And it's also looked like kind of experimenting with it here at Oikos and, and with people I know and personally experiencing being in groups and programs and, and things that uh, kind of claim to help us become more like Jesus. So the sermon is really kind of a culmination of the past year and a half of just studying and learning and asking the question, what does it mean to walk in discipleship to Jesus? And the one thing that I have noticed and I think is um, kind of missing in our churches, but what I think we deeply long for is that Jesus invites us into mutual relationships with one another to have spiritual friendships, that to become like Jesus, we must be doing this with other people. And, and personally, this is something that I have desired, to have deep spiritual friendships who I can go to and ask hard questions who help me become like Jesus. But this is something that's difficult to do. We don't do this naturally. And I think there's a lot of different reasons for that. Uh, you know, for one, I think we don't know how to do it. It hasn't been modeled for us. Um, you know, we grew up in a church, you know, in a, you know, culture where this kind of American individual culture, you can just show up to church, you get saved, and that's it. You know, what, what's the after that? What do I do with my life? Um, so I've just heard people even having conversations here who just long for spiritual friendship. How do I find that? How do I engage with that? Um, so we just don't really know how to do it. It hasn't been modeled for us. But also, it seems like it's hard to find time 
to do this? You know, once I get the kids to bed and try to spend significant time with my spouse, where, when do I do this? You know, when do I meet with people to talk about what it means to live like Jesus? Um, and when I do, personally, I, I'm so exhausted that I just want to keep it light. I want to keep it superficial, right? Like, I just want to have easy conversations the few times I can with my friends, right? Um, but I think also there's a sense of this where it's difficult to do this because it's hard to trust people. It's hard to trust, well, if I go to someone with this, this desire, this longing I have, will they hold that well? Will they listen to it? Will, will I be heard? And also, I think there's a level of trust of, well, can someone younger than me or can someone older than me understand what I'm going through? And I think these are all legitimate barriers to spiritual friendships that we need to have in Jesus. But I think when we look at the invitation to discipleship from Jesus, he's going to gently lead us to overcoming these barriers because it is, I think, impossible to become like Jesus and not live in spiritual community with one another. So this kind of leads us to ask the question, what is discipleship? What, what, you know, what does that even mean? What does this word uh, entail? So to start off, we need to ask the question, what is discipleship? If you've read the Gospels, you know that time and time again, Jesus invites people to become his disciples. He says, come and follow me. And for most of you in the room, I think today, you've accepted at one point in your life that you say, I want to be a disciple of Jesus. And now we, you know, we are walking in that. Uh, but what, what is this relationship really like? Um, and I think to understand what discipleship means for us today, we really have to go back to the Old Testament to look at how this kind of relationship, this, disciple, this um, teacher-to-disciple relationship, how did it begin? So we find this in actually the Old Testament. Uh, we have prophets in the Old Testament who are given a word from the Lord, uh, and then they, they kind of bring with them disciples, people who are going to pass this on. So we see this with Samuel in 1 Samuel 19. But when they saw a group of prophets, so notice that group of prophets prophesying with Samuel standing there as their leader, and in 2 Kings chapter 4, we see this with Elisha. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, your servant. Are we picking up what's going on here? And then Isaiah 8. Bind up this testimony of warning and seal up God's instructions among my disciples. So it seems as if uh, even in the Old Testament that God's people, the people of Israel, had this almost kind of educational system of passing on the revelation of God that a leader would take, take on disciples and then they would teach them the way of preaching God's news and then they would go and do it. We also see this around this time with Greek philosophers, Plato, Aristotle. They had disciples and they were the teacher and they were passing on information, passing on the faith. Um, and this is what, what's happening. But and this also seems to be uh, the, kind of the culture and the people of Jesus' time. So the Hebrew word for disciple is Talmud. The, the plural version of it is Talmudine. Um, so what we see is that during the time of Jesus, there was this tradition of passing on of faith. Um, so a rabbi would kind of gather himself students, learners, and what kind of could be described today as apprentices. People who would uh, pick in a, a disciple and begin to follow them. And the, kind of the age, educational system of the Hebrew people kind of had three stages. The first was uh, young Jewish uh, children, ages kind of five to ten. And during this time, it was called the, the house of the book because they were learning all about the book of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Uh, so from five to ten, they were memorizing, reading, and writing down scripture. They knew scripture really well by the time they were ten. 
And then after that, they kind of moved into a second stage of learning, and this was called the house of uh, the house of learning, because this was really how do you interpret the law from ages about 11 to 13 was what was called the Beit Talmud, where you learn to interpret and live out the law. And for most Jewish people, this is where your education kind of ended. Uh, but there was this third stage that was much more exclusive, required much more like higher level of money and affordability to make happen. Uh, but this was called the Beit Midrash. And this is where we see rabbis calling disciples into relationship. Because this was the intense, uh, what was called the house of study. Daily uh, learning and living how to follow the law that God has given us. Um, and this was where, again, where disciples would call, uh, would find the rabbis and then enter into a relationship with, with them. Um, this is the stage where your disciple would learn how your specific rabbi uh, fasted, how they kept the Sabbath, how they prayed, how they lived life. And a key part of this was that a disciple wanted to become like their teacher exactly. Uh, one scholar puts it this way. He says, discipleship is the art of imit- imitation. It is the art of walking after a teacher. And then after this, so uh, rabbis would take on disciples. They would try to uh, learn to interpret scripture their way. They would try to learn and live exactly as they live by imitating them and walking with them. And then they would be sent out to go and make other disciples. And then they themselves would become rabbis, right? Do we see kind of the progression that goes on? But with rabbi, this is not just like a college professor. Um, is much more intense. A rabbi could also be understood as a master. So the disciple almost served as a servant, that there was kind of a hierarchy here. You were a rabbi to your servants, to your disciples. Um, one, one scholar would put it like this, a disciple's goal was to gain the rabbi's knowledge, but even more importantly, to become like him in character. You see, the hope of a disciple is to become like their teacher. Jesus talks about this in Luke chapter 6. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Uh, If we call ourselves disciples, what we're really saying is that I want to become like Jesus. It's as simple as that. I want to become like Jesus. And when you read scripture and you can try to kind of condense this, you know, what do we do to become like Jesus? We kind of think I see three main categories. To become like Jesus, we must be with Jesus, do what Jesus did, and obey Jesus' commands. Um, But, so our entire lives become a journey of becoming more like Jesus, the Son of God. But this is kind of where the distinction becomes different with Jesus. Because Jesus is not like any other human. He is God, fully divine, fully human. Um, So he's not like any other rabbi that we can take on to follow He is the Son of God. So to become like Jesus, it's going to require more than what our effort can do on its own. Like these are helpful things, but to be transformed into the image of Jesus, it's it's going to take grace. It's going to take the Spirit of God living inside of us and learning to rely on Him to make us into a teacher like Jesus, to make make us into uh, the likeness of Christ. So this was the relationship of a disciple, that you found a rabbi that you really wanted to follow, and you'd ask him, can I learn from you? Can I become like you? But the distinct difference we're going to see with Jesus is he begins to call people to follow him. And even though Paul was not officially a disciple of Jesus in the Gospels, we see he picks up on similar language of what a disciple is is someone who becomes like Jesus. Notice this in Romans 8. 
to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Notice that language, conformity into the likeness of Christ. And then in 2 Corinthians 3, and we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So we are trying to become like Jesus, being trained up to do this. And this is the invitation of Jesus, that discipleship is the imitation and the becoming like Jesus. However, what I want us to really emphasize today, especially in reference to DNA groups, is that Jesus, the context of this is always in kind of co-discipleship, mutual relationships with one another. Let's take a look at, um, really, our main text for the morning is Matthew chapter 4, if you're going to follow along. Uh, But in this text, this is kind of his most notable calling of the disciples text. Let's read this. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come and follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Let's note a few things here. Uh, The first thing, really simple, he says, come and follow me. And what I think we see here is that discipleship has to be centered on Jesus. Uh, Because we have no other rabbi. We have no other person who was God, became flesh, and has invited us into this type of relationship. Uh, He shows us what it means to be human. That's what is so distinct about what Jesus invites us into is that He wants us to become who God has made us to be, and part of that is becoming the image of Jesus, becoming the likeness of Jesus. Um, Because what this is doing is is preparing us for his kingdom. So as we become like Jesus, we are becoming kingdom people. So the more we become like Jesus together, the more God's kingdom is becoming a reality here and among us in Memphis to the ends of the earth. So the first point is really simple. Discipleship must be centered on Jesus. Uh, Notice this next word, come follow me. So what's interesting is that in in the Greek here, this this word follow, it might sound like a verb, like go to follow someone, uh, but really it's a preposition. What Jesus is saying is come behind me, come after me. So this invitation is, is yes, um, it requires action, it requires a response, but it's also just an invitation to be present with Jesus. It's to say, come behind me, take on a posture of learning and, and uh, humility and learn the way in which that I live. Uh, one rabbi during the time gave a blessing to his disciples and he would say, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi's feet. And what he means is, may you sit in the dust of where your rabbi stands. May you be so close to him that as he walks, his dust kicks up upon you, that you follow so closely to him that you are living just like him, that you are in his presence daily. Uh, I love that. Jesus also talks about this in Mark 3. He appointed the 12 that they might be with him. Notice that Jesus picks 12, yes, for like strategy of growing the kingdom, that that may be changed, but the initial relationship is simply presence with the Son. Presence with Jesus, that he might be with him. Because he knows that if, he, if his followers are with him, that then they will slowly become like him. And, and that's really our second point. Discipleship is, like we've talked about, imitating and living the way of Jesus. 
How do we become more like Jesus as we follow him? And Paul mentions this later. He says, imitate me as I imitate Jesus, right? Hmm. Uh, next, we have, um, and we kind of need to switch to the ESV here. So same scripture, but notice how verse 19 is slightly different. Uh, and he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Um, so I think this translation is a bit more helpful. You know, the first one said, uh, and I will send you out to make fish, to, to fish for people. Uh, but really in the Greek here, this word is to recreate, to make. So what Jesus is saying is, come, follow me, have your life centered on me, do what I do, imitate me. And what's going to happen is I am going to change you. Uh, that word make there is seen in the Old Testament. When the Old Testament is tra- uh, translated into Greek, in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. So what we see is Jesus is a distinct rabbi because he, in our discipleship to him, he is recreating us. He is doing a divine recreative act by making us into his image and into his likeness. That as we follow him, we are being transformed. That, that is the natural progression. That as we become a disciple and we become to live like Jesus, he is going to be the one who's doing the work. He is transforming us into his image. So our third point, discipleship is transformational. The point is that we become like Jesus. I find this so helpful. Um, We don't have time to do this this morning, but if you keep looking at the calling text of Jesus, uh, what we see is that this is so much more than, like Jesus is not inviting us to take up a pen and notebook and start taking notes as he talks. Like this is not a classroom. Uh, When he calls uh, someone, a scribe of the law comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, I want to be a disciple. I want to follow you. I will go wherever you go. And Jesus says, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And another one comes up and he says, Jesus, I want to follow you. He says, if you will be my disciple, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me daily. I love when Jesus invites Matthew to be a disciple because he invites Matthew kind of later on, Matthew 16, but what, the next scene, it's not Jesus and the disciples in the synagogue kind of catching up on curriculum, but they're in Matthew's home sitting with sinners and tax collectors. So what we see is the call to discipleship is not just knowledge, it's not just information, it's not picking up a pen and a notebook, but it's strapping on your sandals and following Jesus wherever he will take you, right? That there is a high costly call and commitment, but we know that it is life-giving to us to live the way that Jesus lived, that there's something about this way of living that satisfies our souls like nothing else can, and it's living the way of discipleship of Jesus. So I think what we need to look at next is um, a pretty important stage of discipleship, and that is, okay, so, you know, Jesus invites disciples. He is with them. We try to do what he does. We, We obey his commands, And then in this text that we're going to read, that there is a call to go and make disciples. Uh, What's so interesting about Jesus' ministry is that he, you know, he preaches, he teaches, he uh, performs miracles, he feasts with people. There's this outward kind of demonstration of the kingdom that's taking place. There's this outward thing that he is trying to engage the world in. He's trying to change the world. But all of this that we read in the gospel, there's this kind of underlining relationship. And it is a teacher-to-disciple relationship that as he is doing this, not only are the disciples seeing this kind of outward ministry, right, but along the way he is transforming and changing them into the image of Jesus to prepare them to go and make disciples. Let's read this together. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has uh, has been given to me. 
Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. I'm going to just point out a few things before we get to our main point with this text. But let's notice, go make disciples of all nations. What I love about Jesus' invitation is that there's an invitation that we all come under Jesus' wings, that we are all under the same authority of Jesus, and it's every nation. That in this moment, there is a drastic invitation that people who do not look like you, who come from a different culture than you, are all going to be disciples of Jesus. That is what we talk about here of being a beloved family, a multi-ethnic church. That's what Jesus was inviting them into. All nations are going to come together and be united in the way of Jesus. Uh, what I love next is that he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. So that's what we talked about, right? Like the third thing that helps us become like Jesus is that we obey what he has commanded. That Jesus is saying, if you trust in me, if there's obedience, I'm going to take that small amount of obedience that you can give to me and I'm going to do so much with it. The little that I can give to Jesus, he takes it and transforms us. But then he says, and surely I'm with you to the very end of the age. And again, it's this loving invitation. I'm going to be with you. As I send you out, as we are a gathered people here and we are scattered out to the world, I'm going to be with you wherever you go. But the, really the big thing I want us to see here is this, this language of all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now what we see here is um, that Jesus becomes distinctly a different type of rabbi. And it's because Jesus is not only a good teacher, right? He wasn't just this rabbi who taught an exciting message. He got some popularity, but then upset the wrong people and got murdered and killed, and that was it, right? Now we believe that our teacher is also Lord and Savior of heaven and earth, which distinctly changes how we, I think, look at and talk about discipleship to Jesus. Um, because now what he is saying is, you are all coming under my authority, under my submission, that you are all equal to one Savior and one King, who is Jesus. And this really emphasizes our uh, fourth point of discipleship. Discipleship is within mutual community under Jesus that what I think Jesus is emphasizing is mutual loving friendships. And that's how we become more like Jesus, is entering into these types of relationships. Uh, now, what I'm going to talk about next, I actually want to hold pretty loosely. Uh, and if you have pushback or disagreements, I would love to hear them. But uh, for myself, this has been a helpful shift in talking about discipleship. Um, it's been a helpful transition, especially because of what I talked about at the beginning, that I think we all long for and, and are seeking spiritual friendships with each other. Like, who are my people that I can become like Jesus with? Um, but I think the, the way we might be looking at discipleship right now kind of hinders and adds barriers to those types of relationships. Uh, but let me explain, though. Um, so in a lot of disciple-making circles and people who read and write on this stuff, uh, the language of disciple a lot of times is kind of used as a verb, like, I'm going to go disciple someone. Um, like it's something you do to someone or it's something that's done to you. It's interesting, in the New Testament, this word disciple, mathetes, is used 268 times, um, three of which are in a verb form. One is the one we just read, go and make disciples. It's, it's imperative, this command, go and bring people who are not following Jesus to follow Jesus. And there's two other occasions where we see this. 
Uh, Matthew 27 says, As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. And then Acts 14, When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples. So it's interesting. Um, both of these cases, the verb form of disciple, uh, you know, to make a disciple, uh, seems to describe an event. Like, I was not a disciple, and then I became a disciple. Um, the event of becoming a disciple is a, th- a thing that happens in a moment of time. What we do after that is that we try to become like our teacher, right? Uh, so the phrasing I hear a lot is like, you need to be making disciples. You need to be like Jesus. Find your 12, invite them in, live life with them, teach them, train them up, show them how to live like Jesus, and then send them out. Um, what I, I, what I kind of want to push back on just a little bit there is that I think a lot of times there's, this leads to some confusion uh, because what typically uh, what they mean is like, you know, who are you helping mature into faith? Uh, John Mark Comer has a funny way of saying this. Uh, it's really hard to understand disciple as a verb because mostly it's a noun. And he kind of says like this, we don't say like, who are you believing, right? Like we are believers, we are disciples, but we don't really say like, who are you Christianing right now? Um, but I think there has been this movement to use this language really is coming from a, a gospel-centered motivation because I think for so long we lived in, and live in an American culture that talks about um, faith as something that's consumeristic, that's individual, just show up to church and be saved and that's it. And there's this movement to say, we have to be more intentional. We have to raise people up into the faith. Um, so the, the language of kind of discipling someone, who am I going to disciple? But I think if you look at the Gospels and the kind of the transition to Acts and the Epistles, um, if this exact type of relationship is what Jesus was inviting us into, then what would his disciples have become? I think they would have become rabbis, and then they would have had their disciples, and then they would have had kind of their schools of uh, interpreting Torah. But what we see is that they don't become rabbis, but they become apostles, that they are organizing people, disciples into the local church, that they're bringing them into mutual relationship with one another, where you become like Jesus together. Um, so when I hear people talk about discipling one another, I think uh, really what it's being talked about is like either uh, leadership development or mentoring people into maturity. And don't mishear me, we, we need more of those things, not less of it. Like, we need people to be intentionally pouring into the next generation. We, we see that, um, like, in Titus 2, like, teach the gospel, and older men and women be with younger believers of faith, right? That, that, that's something I think is so important. Um, and, like, my, myself, in fact, I have multiple mentors who I meet with on a regular basis, who give me guidance, who offer me advice on what it means to be someone like Jesus who loves their spouse well, or someone like Jesus who handles conflict well. Um, And this is even how we structure our college ministries, that we bring in older people of faith to help guide them to become like Jesus. Um, But I think the importance here is that those people who are mentoring me, they are not my rabbi. Jesus is my rabbi. Um, And I think using kind of this language of discipling someone can be kind of confusing because making someone disciple seems to be an event. The, the progression of faith is becoming like Jesus. Um, and I think we also need to remember that during the time of Jesus, this relationship of rabbi, teacher, to disciple was at a high level of hierarchy. Like you were the teacher, they were the students, 
they did everything you said. You listened to every word that they uh, did and followed, and you, and you did it, right? There's a, a master-servant kind of dynamic here um, that I think for us today that we want to kind of uh, steer away from. And there's a few, I think, reasons for this. Uh, and then after this, I want to kind of move into um, maybe a different way of understanding it. But uh, because we are all disciples of Jesus, and I think the danger is that someone else becomes Jesus for us where Jesus should be our only teacher and rabbi. And the first one is, I've seen a lot of people place themselves in relationships like this where there's so much pressure to, I, I've got to be the one who this person um, learns from and grows from. And that just puts a lot of pressure. Like we were not made to be Jesus, right? We were not made to be Jesus for someone else. Um, and what happens a lot of times is that these types of relationships just kind of fizzle up because there's so much pressure involved. Uh, and secondly, I think, um, is that it actually makes making disciples a bit less approachable. And what I, mean, what I mean by this is if it's only our mature older people who are discipling younger people into faith, um, you know, bringing them in and then helping them mature, then it kind of makes, you know, us who are younger in the faith or younger in age say, well, man, I, it's going to take me years to be like that person, right? Like, I have so much experience I have to gain before I can make disciples. But Jesus says, go and make disciples. Invite people who are lost, who do not know the way, and bring them into discipleship to Jesus. Uh, so I think that can be a hindrance as well. And then third, um, I think what happens is a lot of times these types of relationships can happen outside of the community, right? Where it's like a one-to-one, you do what I say, you follow what, I, what I'm doing. Where even if you think about Jesus, he, he may invite individual people to become disciples, but it's always into a group of other disciples, right? It's a, it's a family that's doing life together, attempting to become like the rabbi together. Um, so, but there's tension here, and again, I'm welcome to hear pushback on this, uh, because how do we then intentionally train people to become more like Jesus? How do we then see people grow? I think that's the question we have to ask, um, but I think what we see in scripture and what our invitation is, and especially when we think about launching DNA groups, is that how do we walk in mutual discipleship together? Uh, Anne Spangler has this really great book on this. It's called sitting at the feet of Rabbi Jesus. Uh, and in it, she discusses the importance of finding your haverim. So haverim is the Hebrew word for disciples or, or co-students. Co and, and she says this, and I, th I find this really helpful. Uh, she said that haverim were people who entered into co-student relationships where they may enhance learning and growing. That they would take what the rabbi said, right? The teaching, the example, what they would do is that they would kind of go off on their own and discuss it, debate it, reason it out, and then try to live that out together. Hold one another accountable to living the way of Jesus. Uh, she says this in her book. Becoming each other's haverim is an effective way to fulfill Jesus' command to raise up disciples. Rather than viewing ourselves as the rabbi and others as our disciples, becoming haverim allows us take, to take on the role of co-disciples. We can help others grow by learning right alongside of them. So if you do kind of like a, a broad reading of the Gospels, which we're actually doing in our fasting series, so I encourage you to do this. There's lots of times in the Gospels where, uh, you know, the disciples will go to Jesus and they ask a question, right? You know, it's like, Jesus, teach us how to pray. Jesus, who is the greatest? And it seems clear that what was happening before this was that they were conversing themselves, the 12 disciples, and they were like, no, Jesus said this. What does that mean? Okay, Jesus did this. How, how are we supposed to live that out? That there was this kind of 
learning together, discussing, but when they couldn't figure it out, they would go to the rabbi to figure it out. Like they would go to him for the teaching and, to, and for the answer. Um, so it would seem like Jesus' call into discipleship now, uh, what is most healthy, what is sustainable for the lifelong pursuit of becoming like Jesus is uh, entering into mutual brother and sister relationships. Uh, what I think is so interesting is um, the word used more than disciple to talk about, you know, people who are followers of Jesus is not Christian. Christians use it about three times in the New Testament. What is most used to talk about people who follow Jesus is brothers and sisters. That we have br- been brought into a family centered on Jesus, and we as like siblings of the faith are learning and becoming like Jesus together. Does that make sense? Um, so, I'm saying yes to mentoring. I'm saying yes to leadership development. Uh, I'm saying yes to, to all of this. And like we need people who um, are, are having hard conversations, people who doubt, who are exploring what it means to become a disciple. And if you're meeting with those people, I encourage you to keep doing it. Like that, that is not what I'm saying. But when we think about the long-term becoming like Jesus, I think we're called to do that as co-disciples together. Um, but again, I would love to talk more about that. Uh, if you have questions. So discipleship is a lifelong pursuit of becoming like Jesus. And I think Jesus is encouraging us to do this together. Uh, so why then do we not enter into these types of relationships? I think we talked about something like the, the hierarchy kind of model. It makes it difficult to see how, um, how do I do this day in and day out? And we talked some about the pitfalls there. And again, like we talked about, just the pace and life in which we live in, it, it's hard to find time. We, we just don't know how to do this. It's hard to trust people to do this. Um, it's just so difficult. But I think there's another reason that uh, makes this challenging. Um, and that is, let, let's think about our group spaces here at Oak Coast. So we have this space, this gathering, right? The Sunday morning worship where we worship, we pray, our kids get teaching. We have teaching um, this space is kind of where new people can come experience what it's like to be a follower of Jesus here at Oikos. But also in this space, though, you know, it, it's difficult to feel like you're known here. It's difficult to feel like you can share what's going on in your life. And that's not a knock on this type of space, right? Like, that's just not one of the strong suits that this space does. Like, you can't come here just on Sunday morning and expect to feel known in community. And that's okay. Jesus belonged in these spaces, right? Like, when he... Uh, teaches large crowds, or when he worships in the synagogue, he's in these types of spaces. Uh, But it has some downsides, right? It can't do everything that we need to become like Jesus. So then then think about um, your Oikos group, 15 adults and about 400 kids running in a house together uh, where they, uh, we're trying to worship, we're trying to serve, we're trying to play and reflect together in community. And this is what I would call doing life-to-life discipleship, that people you know who you're committed to meet weekly to, to just do life together, right? But even in this space, right, it, it is difficult to feel like you have a time to share openly, to truly express what's going on inside. And there's a few reasons for that. I think for one, again, it's kind of an open space. We want new people into these spaces. Uh, for, for the second, I think uh, it's, it's mixed gendered, right? Like sometimes we need a space that's just men or just women to really dive into the depths of what it means to be a Jesus follower for me. And then third, it's hard to do this with a thousand kids running around in your home, right? It just, it's hard to get that kind of atmosphere going. But again, that's not a knock on these types of spaces. Like we desperately need Oikos groups. That's why we started Oikos groups from the beginning of 
the church. And that's why we started worshiping together from the beginning of this church. But if you think about these spaces, it seems as if there's, a, there's kind of a gap missing, like there's something lacking, right? And I think this is what we need then. What kind of spaces do we need? Like we've talked about something that's mutual, but something that's also intimate and intentional. And this is what I mean by that, um, is that we need spaces where smaller, maybe three to five people meet together once a month for intentional conversation, where it's uh, intimate and intentional, where we can be vulnerable, we can uh, open up and share, where it's just men or just women. Um, and these, again, these types of spaces have been around, just like Jesus was in Oikos group type of spaces. But like, think about it, he had 12 disciples and then the Marys and the Marthas and some siblings. Like, he had his Oikos group, and they traveled throughout town. But Jesus also had a group of three, Peter, James, and John. And we see throughout the Gospels that he pulls them aside on occasion to, to be in more intimate belonging spaces. And there's some that would say, well, you know, he was developing them into leaders. Like, they become major leaders of the church. And I, I think that's true. But I think also, though, if we believe that Jesus was fully divine, fully God, but yet fully human, just like I desire and need these spaces, so did Jesus. You know, think about Matthew 26, when Jesus is at the Garden of Gethsemane, and he is moments away from humiliation, crucifixion, and death. Who does he pull aside? Peter, James, and John. And he says to them, my soul is on the verge of death. My soul is overwhelmed. That would be a tough thing to say in your Oikos group or on Sunday morning, right? Like we need a space like that to just share the inner workings of our soul with someone else. And Jesus had this type of space. Um, and I think this is a type of space that the history of Christians have been utilizing and using since the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So about 300 years after Jesus' death, um, there was a group of people who chose to go out into the wilderness, into the desert to pursue living like Jesus. These people were called monks. Uh, and there was some monks who tr created a tradition where it was like intense isolation. And so they like did not talk with anyone, did not meet with anyone. They were alone in a desert to become like Jesus. And there was kind of then this other extreme where we're going to disconnect from culture. We're going to build this like society, this community that's disconnected from all this in the desert to be like Jesus together. Both of which do really good things, right? But there was a kind of a tradition of monks called the monks of Skeet. Most likely they were from the Skeetus Valley in Egypt. What these people tried to do was that they tried to find a middle road between these two extremes. And what that looked like for them was that they lived in small, what they called cells of monks or caves of monks. So they would live like in groups of you know, like five to eight in, in a living space together. And then they would join the full community for worship, prayer, and gatherings like that. But the majority of their life was done in spiritual friendships, living together in small groups. So then if you fast forward in time, about a thousand years, we find men uh, named, let me get this right, uh, Martin Bucher and Jacob Spinner, who uh, are living in Germany. They come out of the Protestant movement, um, and they begin to do something very similar. They, they created these things called collegia uh, pietas, schools of piety, where, again, small groups of people, three to five, gender-specific, would come together to talk about what it means to follow Jesus. Uh, and they would talk about how to read scripture and how to live a pious life. This is something the history, the, the history of Christians have been doing all throughout time. So then fast forward a couple uh, more hundred years. Uh, we find, uh, born in England, is a man named John Wesley. 
uh, and he moves to Georgia here in America, and he's the father of the Methodist movement. So what he does is he organizes his churches into kind of three broad categories, what he calls the uh, Society of Holiness, the large group gathering. And then he had class meetings, what we would call life groups. And then, and this is a great name for it, he says he would bring people together in bands of holiness, right? Uh, it's a pretty legit name. Um, but guess what these people did? That they met together regularly, three to five gender-specific groups where they confessed sins. And what they did, he called this closed conversations. What he mean by that is a, a soul-searching examination. I love that language, soul-searching examination. So there is something about the wisdom of our Christian tradition that has been utilizing this type of space from the beginning. It's something that Jesus did. So as we think about um, Oikos, as we think about us in Memphis 2023, what does this type of space look like? Well, it's going to sound like what we just talked about. But in April, so we're finishing up our fasting season. Uh, we're going to get through this series. And in April, we are inviting you into optional. Hear that right, optional. You do not have to do this. But if there is a desire, we desire to make the space available to you. But optional uh, gender-specific groups of three to five adults who meet about once a month to uh, become like Jesus together, to live in spiritual friendship with one another. And we are calling these DNA groups where they do discipleship, they do nurturing, and they do accountability. And Smith is going to talk about what it means to be nurturing and hold one another accountable well. Um, so these are going to be closed groups, though, where they're kind of distinct from the Sunday morning gathering and our Oikos groups because we want deep confidentiality. And that doesn't mean they can't grow when new people come in, but for a time they are closed groups so that we can intimately walk together following Jesus. And kind of what I spent a decent amount of time on, what's crucial about these groups is that they are not leader-led. So what this looks like at the beginning of this group, each Oikos group is going to have a, a male and a female point person who, if you're interested in it, you're going to go to them and say, hey, I want to be in this type of group, and they're going to kind of form it, and they'll organize the first meeting. But then after that, it's on the group to organize, to be committed. That This is mutual discipleship together, right? Like to be a part of this, you have to bring something into the game, right? Um, and this is important because uh, lots of times in big group spaces, somebody who is a natural leader tends to step up, right? Because it's just something needs to get done. Like somebody's got to do it. So as we think about DNA groups, there needs to be commitment that, uh, that you show up, that you respond to text messages about, hey, yes, I can do this date, but I can't do that date. You know, let's figure this out together and walk in discipleship together, uh, but it takes a, a certain level of commitment. So over the next month, as you fast, I encourage you and invite you to consider what would it look like to follow Jesus in this way. Um, I want you to imagine what would it look like and what could the Holy Spirit do if you were to meet with two to four other people in your Oikos group for once a month for genuine conversation. What would this do to your Oikos group? How would it bring you closer together? How would it build a, a level of deeper relational trust with each other? But also, what kind of example could you set for your kids? If your kids knew that my parents take their discipleship to Jesus seriously, they meet in these types of groups to be open and honest. Imagine if you did that every month for an hour and a half. Where would you be in six months? Where would you be in a year? Like, Think about all the relationships that you've made over the past year and three months. Now imagine if you committed to two or three people, where you'd be in a year from now. Imagine what the Holy Spirit could do in that space. 
Imagine if we did this, if we kind of practiced it, right? If it was like an incubator for spiritual friendship, how it would then bleed out into our lives just in daily conversation. How our oikos groups, when they play and reflect and serve and worship, how this would just become, I think, naturally happening. That this is what we need to become more like Jesus. Uh, one more thing before I let you go get your kids. Um, you might be wondering, like, what, like, really, what can a one-hour conversation do, though? Like, is there any power in that? Um, but I just want to share, if the little that we give to Jesus, he can do so much with. Um, about four years ago, I entered into a, what's called spiritual direction. Um, so about once a month for an hour, I meet someone who's been trained to listen well, to ask good questions, and it's all directing me towards God. Where can I experience God more in my life? Um, and I've been doing that for about four years now, and I cannot tell you what a one-hour conversation once a month can do, how transformative it can be, because it serves as this mile marker, right? Where, okay, this month I, I was dealing with this, talking about this. Okay, three months later, am I still dealing with that? And if so, I need to take a serious look within. And, and I love spiritual direction, but imagine the power that they can have if it's those people who you're seeing every week anyways in Oikos groups, in worship. Imagine the depth of this, this small check-in, this one hour a month, the power that that could have in our lives to become more like Jesus in our transformation. Uh, I, I just get excited thinking about it. Um, so we invite you now for the next month or so to prayerfully discern, is this something that you would be interested in? Is this something that you are longing for? And if so, we encourage you to prayerfully imagine what this could look like for you. So if you would stand up with me, and I'm going to bless you, and you can go get your kids. Psalms 133 says, How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling in the Mount of Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Father, we pray and bless this community that you call us into a deeper discipleship to you with one another, that every day we become one more degree of glory closer into your image and likeness, because we believe that through this, you are remaking the world as you remake us into your image and your kingdom. Father, be with us as we go along the way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go get your kids.